Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood again with Storytime. And it's here Saturday afternoon on San Diego. Got my Newcastle. Got my text of What Lurks Between, science fiction novella that I wrote that I've been reading to you the last three weeks. And... I guess it's time to do the next part, right? So when last we left our heroes, Barry had uh, run with, uh, was it Sheila, who he uh, rescued from the bunny rabbit monster, and then she rescued him in turn and bound up his wounds. They were going to get the hell out of the T-stop, but holy cow, it was closed. And they called the cops to come help him get him out. It me about 15 minutes, and Barry realized, you know, bunny monster is probably nowhere near dead. I don't think we got 15 minutes before it comes after us. And that's where we left off. Uh, I think we were about two-thirds of the way through, even though there's been three episodes, three parts reading this so far, and that's because the last one I had to abbreviate a bit just because of time. Uh, I think we should probably, should hopefully, let's see, we got 10,000 words left to read, so be about an hour, plus or minus. And now, eh, what the heck, we'll just get through this and knock it out. Because uh, next week, I'm going to start on a new story. And I'll tell you more about that at the end once I'm done with uh, this one. Anyway, I hope it's been a good week. Uh, not too much eventful around here, except that... Uh, no, not too much eventful around here. Your usual kind of routine. So I'm going to take a sip of my Newcastle, and then I'll get reading here in just a sec. Okay, What Lurks Between? Science fiction horror novella written by yours truly. Part 4. I crept back down the stairs slowly, easing each foot down onto the stair below before shifting my weight onto it to avoid making a noise. It would have felt a bit comic. Hell, I had to suppress the feeling that I looked like a fool, but rising fear stamped down my self-consciousness in favor of fight or fight. I glanced over my shoulder to where Sheila sat, her back pressed up against the metal bars that sealed the entrance to the station. She managed a quick smile and thumbs up brave girl. She was clearly terrified, but was trying not to show it. I wondered how well I was doing in that regard. Then I lowered myself down into the station proper, and I stopped, listening and looking. The spot where the bunny monster attacked me, and where Sheila knocked it for a loop, was easy to see from the smear on the floor. But aside from that, there were no visible indication of where it might have gone. The only noises were the soft hum of fluorescent lights that illuminated the station, and of ventilation fans whirring softly away in their ducts. Of course, the whole place smelled like crap. It's not going to be easy to find this thing. Listening to the fans, I considered briefly whether the bonnie monster had crawled into the ventilation ducts and from there up into the surface, but quickly discarded the thought. It was not as nimble as it had been when we first met, and the babies were clearly coming any time. Chasing, Sheila and I, hitching on a ride on the T and surviving the truck and Sheila's attack must have drained a good portion of its energy. I let myself hope that it crawled away into a corner to sleep, and maybe I could dispatch it while I was unconscious. 
a fat chance of that. I walk slowly across the wide open area, past the entrance turnstiles, looking back and forth for any sign of the monster, and saw nothing. Not a thing. There was not even a smear or a streak leading away from where it had fallen. And I continued on and found that I had to force myself to breathe regularly. My heart pounded in my ears, and it seemed like every step I took echoed loudly throughout the station, no matter how carefully I set my feet. And so I was surprised to hear a rustling sound, faint, almost inaudible, but there it was off to my right, behind a closed-up concessions cart. I thought for a second it was just a rat, but I knew that was just wishful thinking. Part of me, a huge part, screamed to run, just get away from the thing. But the small little window of reason that I had been working so hard to maintain recognized that would be futile. The bunny monster had already proven more than willing to track me down, and probably now Sheila as well, even on a moving train. Surely it would catch me on foot without any trouble at all, and besides, where was I going to go? Down the train tracks, into the darkness of the tunnels between stations where a train would likely run me down without even noticing? I froze in mid-step, not even realized I had begun walking toward the concessions cart, as the details of that idea struck me. These tunnels all had maintenance accesses, walkways, things like that. Maybe we could get away through them, down to the next station. Could not be more than a quarter mile at most, that would just take a few minutes, and then we could get out. Almost on cue, a low rumbling began to emanate from the tunnel leading off to the south, where we had come from. It got slowly louder, and I felt my heart leap. Another train! Maybe I could flag it down, and we would not have to walk even. I turned and darted back to the turnstiles at the bottom of the stairs and gestured frantically for Sheila to come back down. She blinked, looking confused, then unbelieving. She shook her head, lips turned downward into a deep, frightened frown. The rumbling was even louder, and I could see the light from the approaching train's headlights begin to brighten the tunnel's curve where the track bent out of sight to the south. Damn it! We were going to miss our chance! I gestured again more forcefully and pointed toward the track. She could not see it, not from where she stood. I silently prayed, it had been ages since I'd done that with any regularity, that she would get my gist and move it. The rumbling of the train grew louder. Beneath it, the squeaks of wheels against the tracks as the train reached the turn began to sound. Finally, Sheila seemed to understand. She moved down the stairs, tentatively at first, and then with greater speed as she got lower and heard the approaching train. She reached the turnstile and vaulted over. I turned and ran back toward the track. The highlights were brilliant in the tunnel. The train was about to round the turn. I reached the edge of the platform and waved my hands, shouting at the top of my lungs, just as the train burst into sight and came barreling into the station. For a brief moment, I thought I saw the conductor. The driver? What the hell they call those guys on subways, anyway? As he approached... He gave me a look that someone reserves for an idiot, and then he was gone, out of my sight, as the train sped past. He never even applied the brakes. The train sped off to the north, the red taillights first bright but steadily dimming as it sped away, and I lowered my arms. I realized I was still shouting and stopped. It would alert the bunny monster. Not that it really needed alerting, but still. Son of a bitch. Sheila stood next to me, watching the train speed away with despair in her voice. I glanced toward her and saw it on her face as well. Come on, I said, we're getting out of here. I grabbed her hand, she did not pull away, and led her toward the northbound tunnel at the end of the platform. I swore under my breath when we reached it. There was not a service walkway, like I thought there would be. Would there even be one further down? You've got to be kidding, Sheila pulled back then, removed her hand from my grasp, but she shook her head in denial. You want to work down the tracks. Better that than waiting for that thing to get its act together. We're waiting for the cops. Are you really sure they will get here first? Just then, a loud thump echoed through the station. It came from the direction of that concessions cart. 
A cold spike of terror surged through me, and I could see from her expression that Sheila felt the same. No choice, I said, and held out my hand to her. She looked back over her shoulder toward the turnstiles and the stairs leading up, then swallowed and took a deep breath. Then she nodded to herself and took my hand. Together, we hopped down from the platform onto the traps and ran northward toward the darkness of the subway tunnel. I've seen movies and shows where people creep down dark tunnels, whether subway lines or roads or just plain old walking tunnels. In those shows, the light continues on for a long time, and even after they round the corner from the light source, they can still see, however dimly. It's not at all how it is in real life. Within ten paces, I had a hard time making out details on anything except for the subway rails themselves. Ten paces further on, we came to a bend in the tunnel, and I could barely see a thing. The thought of the bunny monster lurking behind us, or just as bad, a train running up on us from behind, compelled me to keep running, though. So, I did. And within two steps, I tripped over a rail tie and fell head first to the ground. My trin struck the edge of a tie as I landed, and I felt a searing pain as my skin tore. I could not see it, but I knew I was bleeding, badly. I lay there for several long seconds, clutching my bleeding, throbbing chin in my hand. Beside me, I heard Sheila panting heavily, sucking in great quantities of air as quickly as she could. I vengeed her, bent over, her hands on her knees as she tried to regain her breath, but in the darkness, she was just one shadow on top of fifty more. You okay? she asked between breaths. Trying to ignore the metallic taste in my mouth, I may have bit my tongue as well. It was hard to tell. As ubiquitous as the pain was right that minute. I coughed and I nodded. Great, was all I managed. But it seemed to be enough. She took a deeper breath and I could almost hear her relief as she took my hand and helped me to my feet. I looked around and was surprised that I could just make out some details. A dim green glow came from ahead around the corner. I had not noticed it before. My eyes must have been beginning to adjust to the gloom. But it was still hard to make out anything more than the curve of the rails and the outline of Sheila's body. There was nothing for it but to continue on, so we did, more slowly this time. I tried not to reduce us to a crawl, but after that fall I found myself gingerly testing each foothold before shifting my weight ahead to make sure my foot was on a good surface, not in a pit or on the edge of a tie. It made for slow going, much slower than was wise in our circumstances, but I could not complain. Sheila did not either. Eventually, we rounded the corner and were rewarded with light that was bright enough to make out the tunnel in detail. It came from a small lamp that looked like one of the stoplights you can see at most of the street corners. A quick look at it revealed why. It was one of those stoplights, except it only had red and green, not yellow. Right then, the green light was the only one lit. I cast about quickly and found what I was looking for. Through a gap on the wall to the left, a gap which led to the southbound track, I was sure, I saw a small metal scaffold running along the wall. At least. At last, there lay safety. Of a sort. I felt my spirits buoy as I strode over to the gap and peeked through. Looking right, all was blackness except for a dull glow a ways down the tunnel. Although right there, the glow was red probably to signal the proximity of the station and that the conductor needed to begin stopping the train. Although, with the station closed, what would be the point? Regardless, there was no train coming and the scaffold lay just past the southbound rails. The only problem was a lack of stairs or a ladder leading up to it. That's your plan, Sheila said. I glanced aside at her and saw that she was nodding approval, a hopeful gleam in her eyes. She no doubt thought as I did that there had to be a maintenance access between stations, 
Some of them were miles apart, after all, and if that were the case, the access would almost certainly link up with the scaffold. At the very least, the scaffold would make for much better footing, and safer footing, than walking on the rails. And best of all, the scaffold was lit by dim blue-white lights and fixtures that were set in the side of the tunnel at regular intervals. We'd be able to see better as well. I nodded. Just need to find a ladder up. Sheila sniffed and darted forward, hopping over the rails, missing the third rail by less than an inch, until she stood below the scaffold. Then she bent her legs double and jumped up. My jaw, pained as it was, fell open in astonishment. She must have pushed herself a good three or four feet off the ground, if not more. She grabbed the middle bar, making up the guardrail of the scaffold's edge. There she hung for a second before she swung her legs up onto the walkway. Then she shimmied the rest of the way on and rolled to her feet. I just stood there, feeling like an idiot, and went out looking far worse. She just grinned back. I was on the varsity gymnastics team. All sorts of possibilities that were extremely inappropriate in that particular situation sprang to mind, unbidden. Well, I said, <clears throat> clearing my throat and forcing those thoughts away, uh, give me a hand up. Sheila's grin became positively impish. A few moments later, after much huffing and puffing, and with a good deal of help from Sheila, I managed to haul myself up onto the scaffold. That really sucked, but it sure beat walking the rails. I got to my feet and we got moving. Our pace a lot better now that we had sure footing. Things were looking up, and I began to think we might actually get out of this with our skins mostly intact. So, naturally, that was the precise moment when everything went right to hell. The roar came immediately after the thud, and by thud, I mean more like an earth-shaking kaboom than the everyday thud of dropping a sack of potatoes. It was loud. Problem is, the roar was even louder, and it was not somehow an incoherent bellow. No, it was a single word. My name. My name, spoken with all the fury of a hundred, no, make that a thousand, women scorned. It was enough to almost make me fall over dead from shock and terror. How it managed not to was beyond me. Maybe it was Sheila's presence, her eyes widening in fear that I knew mirrored my own, or maybe it was the determination that I did not even know I had. Regardless, after staggering for a moment before the onslaught of sheer volume, I looked back down the tunnel toward the station we had fled and, seeing something big moving in the shadows of the tunnel back there, I did what any red-blooded man in the prime of his youth would do in that situation. I ran like hell. I pushed Sheila ahead of me and just ran, thanking the good lord that we had made it onto the steady footing of the scaffold before the bunny monsters decided to get us act together. Of course, from what I had seen back when I looked back, the bunny monster was probably the wrong term to use now. The thing looked much larger than it had been, if the shadows were a good indicator of its size. But there was no time to dwell on that, not if we wanted to have a prayer of getting out of there. So we ran, fast as we could. Sheila impressed me right off. She needed no coaxing. She was off like a gazelle, running far faster than she had on the streets above. I can only assume the full understanding of what we were facing moved her to new levels of effort. Or she was really not giving it her all before. Either way, it was all I could do to keep up with her. And I'm no slouch in the running department. Or at least I wasn't, back in the day. But as I panted and struggled to keep up, I found myself tallying up the number of years that had passed since I ran track in high school. It was a depressingly large number. I didn't have time to consider that number for very long, though. Something struck me in the, from behind in the center of my back, and I fell forward. I threw my hands out to lessen the impact of the fall, but all the same, I once again struck my chin against the floor. 
This time, spots of light flashed across my vision and an intense ring filled my ears. I literally lost track of everything that was going on around me, intense as the impact and the pain was. Somewhere in the background, I heard Sheila scream. A voice, a very loud voice in my mind, screamed at me to get up. Get up now, where I was a dead man, and likely Sheila would die as well. It was normally a compelling argument, but I found I could not make my limbs move, at least not in a coherent manner. Gradually, the stars in my vision and the ringing in my ears began to recede, and I became more aware of the environment around me. I really wished I had not. My back felt wet and sticky where whatever it was that had struck me made contact. There was nothing and no one in the immediate vicinity besides Sheila. However, somewhere not too far off, something large was moving down the scaffold toward me. The scaffold creaked and groaned with its every step, but it still it kept on coming. Sheila was crouched next to me, shouting at me to get up, to move. She held onto my right hand with both of hers, and she was pulling frantic at me, at me, trying to help me up. I went with the force of Sheila's tug and rose to a sitting position. There I stopped as the monster strode into view. In fairness, it more hopped than walked. That much, at least, it kept of the bunny persona the beast had been wearing. Aside from that, though, whew, its head was hideous. A twisted of the cute bunny face it had worn into something vile, hungry, and vicious. Its snout was short with an upturned nose, but its forehead rose quite a bit higher than the bunny's had. It bled slowly from a gash in its left temple. That must have been where the majority of Sheila's blows had landed, back in the station. The rest of its body was... The best word that came to mind is bloated. It was as though the bunny's body had expanded like a balloon until it reached the size of a German shepherd, and then cracked in multiple locations as its skin stretched beyond the breaking point, leaving areas where it was covered by a soft-looking white fur and other areas that were black or maybe very dark green and scaly. Ooze of some sort or other dripped from those scaly parts where it fell to the metal walkway of the scaffold, a soft hissing issued in steam or a mist of some sort of gas wafted up. The analytical part of my brain put two and two together and realized that the ooze, whatever it was, was acidic. The worst part, though, were the thing's eyes. They were different from when it had worn the bunny mask, still slitted, still red and piercing, but somehow now the red was that much redder and they almost seemed to glow with a burning light of their own. It gazed at us, at me, and I could see its rage towering like the skyscrapers in the city above us. All at once, the mental pressure that it had used on me all those times to force me to its will came crashing down, but it was stronger, so much stronger than it had ever been before. My hands flew to my temples and I heard myself crying as I fell backwards. Pain, far worse than any physical pain that it had inflicted on me with all its claws all those times, ran through every fiber of my being down to the depths of my soul. Fool, to think you could beat me. And I thrashed around, mindful of nothing but the pain and the booming voice of the bunny monster in my mind. I would have left you for last as your reward for service. Ended you quickly, but now... The pressure rebounded, and the world began to fade beneath the red haze that filled my vision. It was too much. I was going to pass out, and then it would finish me while I was unconscious. I know I screamed. I must have. But no sound reached my ears except for the thumping of my heart and the gleeful mental cackle from my foe. Then, I blacked out. Blacked out is not the right term. I lost track of what was going on around me as the pain overwhelmed it all. 
By all rights, I should have fallen unconscious as my mind sought a last refuge from the bunny monster's onslaught. One last bit of peace before the end. But that's not what happened. Instead of the peace of oblivion, as my gaze filled with nothing but red in my mind, registered nothing but pain, I blinked and found myself elsewhere. But not just elsewhere, but else when. All at once I found myself bathed in a soft yet somehow sickly white light, and I realized I was standing upright. To my left and right stood walls that were painted a boring shade of pale gray. They stretched ahead, enclosing the corridor where I stood, for about twenty meters before bending sharply to the right. Looking behind me, I saw that the corridor did the same thing in that direction, except it bent to the left. Somewhere in my head, the analytical part of my mind took that in and decided that the corridor must double around itself to form a complete loop around a central core. It all clicked together then. I was on Ketchum Station. Of course, that made no sense. I had departed the station days ago, and now it lay adrift, uninhabitable, victim of one of any of the thousands of stupendously unlikely but deadly nonetheless mishaps that could befall a space station. There was no way I could be on the station. I knew for a fact that I really lay on a scaffold in the southbound tunnel of the red line of the Boston's team network, just two stops from downtown crossing. This was just, oh, well, I didn't know what it was. But damn if it didn't seem real. Voices echoed down the corridor toward me, and a moment later, two men and a woman, all dressed in lab coats with security badges on their left breast pockets, strode into view. The men were nameless faces to me, but I recognized the woman immediately as Dr. Liu, the researcher who had chewed me away earlier. I didn't want to deal with her again, so I turned quickly back to the electrical panel I was working on. Then it hit me. I was working? I had not realized that at first, but then what else would I be doing? If this was not real, it must be a memory, and all I did on Ketchum Station was work. I think... The trio walked past me without slowing, though I thought I saw Dr. Liu cast me a wary glance. They were discussing something in technical ease that was way over in my head. I didn't even bother trying to listen. But then two words jumped out and grabbed me. Quantum Tunneler. The two researchers in the cafeteria had used that phrase. One of the men flanking Dr. Liu said it now. And my interest peaked. I listened more closely. The last tests were very promising, the man tall and lean with sandy blonde hair, was saying. The other man, more dumpy and older, with a bad comb over, snorted. Promising, the damn rabbit came through in pieces. But it did come through. Horace and Shelby have high confidence that their adjustments are sound. The balding man's response contained entire levels of derision. Really? And who checked their work? I would not trust those two to... Enough, Dr. Liu said in a stern tone, silencing both men. We will proceed with the next test. Baldy opened his mouth to protest, but she cut him off. As soon as you are satisfied with the adjustments, Leo. They turned the corner then, and the rest of their conversation faded. Baldy's expression of chagrin as he vanished from sight spoke volumes, though. He had not planned on carrying that ball, not one bit. For the next several minutes, I finished up tightening the connections within the panel. It had gotten to the point that I could perform that particular job without paying much attention, so my thoughts began to wonder. What was this tunneler thing? They were sending rabbits through it, whatever it was, and it was doing bad things to them. To put it mildly, what was it? Sometime later, I turned the corner, dull gray and bland, just like every other corridor in the Ketchum Station, and found myself outside the lab where I first met Dr. Liu. The memory of her early meeting and of her dismissal flashed through my head, and I almost turned around before anyone saw me, but curiosity stopped me. 
What were they doing in there? Through the viewing window, I saw a large group of researchers clustered together, Dr. Liu among them. Stretch and Baldy were there also, Baldy looking resigned, yet also intrigued. The two new junior researchers, I recall from the cafeteria, were there as well. They stood in front of a whiteboard that was covered in Greek letters and mathematical symbols that I found indecipherable. They were pointing excitedly to one point of the board in particular. After a moment of discussion, Dr. Liu held a hand up and everyone stopped talking. Her lips moved and she looked to her left, where Baldy stood. He pursed his lips for several seconds while his eyes traced over the equations on the board. Then, finally, he nodded. I presumed whatever the cafeteria guys said, it had proven satisfactory. Dr. Liu nodded and clapped her hands. The group dispersed quickly, each person going to a station around the room. They began throwing switches and making adjustments on equipment panels in the rapid yet deliberate way of people who were well-practiced at their tasks. A minute or so later, just as before, a man entered the room, but this time he only carried one cage. As before, when he grabbed the rabbit and lifted it out, the little creature struggled and kicked. But after a minute, it settled down as the man set it down on a small black ramp that led toward the device in the back of the room that I could not see clearly last time. This time, I had no such difficulty. The device took me by surprise. It was basically just a metal ring, about a meter in diameter that rested atop a small table. It did not look like much of anything at all. The ramp leading up to the ring began to move, and I could see that it was not a ramp at all. It was a conveyor belt. The money rode along placidly, chewing on some bit of food or the other. I wondered if it was curious about the thing it was moving toward. Lord knows I was. At that point, the bunny, about halfway to the ring, I noticed the other device. It sat about three meters away from the first ring, and it looked identical to it in every respect, except that the conveyor belt was moving away from it. I began to have a notion of what was going on, but it was too incredible. Like science fiction. Of course, I thought this while standing in a research lab in an orbiting space station with artificial gravity, so who was I to judge? The rabbit neared the end of the conveyor belt into the first ring, and Dr. Liu gave an order. One of the junior researchers threw a switch, and lights turned on around the circumference of both rings. The lights began rotating, slowly at first, then more rapidly, until, as the rabbit passed through the threshold of the first ring, I could no longer make out the individual lights, but only a ring of light superimposed on each metallic ring. The rabbit crossed into the first ring, and there was a brilliant flash of white light along with a small gust of wind. I could see the researcher's hair suddenly whip to and fro, as well as a barely audible popping sound. It must have been much louder from within the lab for me to hear it outside. Half a heartbeat later, there was a similar flash of white light from the center of the second ring. And then there was a tremendous explosion and a deafening roar. The researchers were knocked prone. Some lay still where they landed, others writhed in obvious pain. The plexiglass viewing window was cracked, the shockwave from the explosion was so strong. I stood motionless and stunned. I knew it should have sounded an alarm or run for help or something, but the events inside the lab held me transfixed. Smoke and flame leapt from the table where the second ring stood. Electrical arcs shot forth, followed by another roar, and then, from within the billowing smoke, I saw a pair of eyes. Glowing red eyes with vertical slits, like a cat's. I jerked awake, or back to reality at least, sitting bolt upright as the shock of the vivid recollection hit home. The bunny monster. It was the bunny monster's eyes I saw through the smoke on Ketchum Station. Dr. Liu and her associates created the bunny monster. Not intentionally, for certain, 
but whatever they were doing with those rings, and I had to assume it was some sort of teleportation device, changed the rabbit, maybe made it into something different, something twisted. And then Sheila pulled at me again, and I remember the situation I was actually in. The bunny monster, hugely grown now from what it had been at first, was approaching steadily. Its eyes narrowed as it focused in completely on me. Get up! Sheila shouted, and I wasted no time and no bang. For a brief moment, I considered how to fight against the bunny monster. But then it roared again, and I realized the futility of that thought. So once again, we ran. Fast. It was only after I'd put a couple dozen running steps behind me that I realized the crushing pressure I'd felt in my mind just moments ago, or was it even that long, was gone. I risked a glance over my shoulder. The bunny monster was still there, still coming. Its eyes still burned with fury, a fury that was directed at me with fierce intensity. And yet, I suddenly felt nothing. No, that wasn't right. I felt it, but it was somehow not as mind-crushing as it had been before. Maybe because of what I had remembered? I slowed, then stopped, and turned to face the monster. Barry, what are you doing? Run! Sheila's voice boomed in my ears, but at the same time, it was like I was listening to her from within a glass bubble. The words came through, but they were stepped down, slower and deeper than normal, almost stretched out. In the depths of my mind, I heard another voice, also muffled and muted, raging at me and trying to force me to bend or to break. It was the bunny monster. I was certain of that. But it was as though the beast had lost its power or something was shielding me from it, something strong. Whatever mental strength or protection had manifested itself within me just then, it obviously did not offer physical protection as well. What trick of mind ever did? But even knowing that, I found I could not turn away and run, no matter the urging of my mind. I stood tall and stared it in the eyes it advanced, and somehow I found that I was smiling. You're an ugly bastard under all that fur, I said. I did not say it particularly loudly. Hell, I did not even say it in my normal speaking volume, but the words cut through the air between us like a knife, the sound seeming almost deafening to me for a second. The bunny monster reacted even more strongly. My words struck it, and it recoiled, its eyes widening. In pain? In anger? Or confusion? All of those? Something else? Whatever the reason, it stopped its advance. In the brief respite, I made a waving gesture with my hand towards Sheila. I silently willed her to take the hint and run, and get away while I ran interference here. And for a moment I thought she did, then a movement to my side drew my gaze and I saw her standing to my left, her jaw set determinedly despite the fact that she was visibly trembling. My heart sank even as my mind shouted her praises, both for staying to assist against the beast and for her composure in fighting back her fear. The bunny monster growled, and I looked back at it. It had drawn back on itself, crouching like a cat ready to spring at us, which was a neat trick since it still resembled a bunny, at least partially. Fools, it said softly, but again, soft as its words were, they reached my ears without difficulty. I have seen a million of your worlds begin and end. Watch the turning of ages unnumbered. You would stand against me? A deep, rumbling chuckle filled with mockery issued from it. What are you? Sheila asked what I had been wondering for days, but I already knew the answer before the money monster replied. It came to me in a flash, an insight that blossomed seemingly from nowhere. I can only assume it grew out of my sudden recollection of the events on the station. I told myself that was all it was. The alternative, that it had come from someone else, was too unworthy to think of. 
The bunny monster was not just a warping of that poor rabbit by the teleportation process. No, in making their teleporter, Dr. Liu's team had torn a hole in reality, a hole with no distance as we know it between one side of it and the other, even though those sides, in fact, stood several meters apart. The creatures inhabit the world between the sides, between what we call space. The monster had taken the rabbit the way superstitious people used to believe a demon could take possession of a person, and now it was revealing itself. Maybe it really was what those people called a demon, and now it was prepared to give birth to its progeny, a progeny that would be at home in our world, not in the spaces between. And that would spill the end, for many people certainly, and maybe for everyone and everything. We could not let that happen, Sheila and I. Glancing at her again, I saw that she did not understand the way that I did. But she could see it was an abomination, and for whatever reason, if I was not going to flee, neither was she. Her jaw already set, firmed even more, and her eyes narrowed in concentration. The bunny monster spoke again, and its words were called a battle if ever I had heard one. Not that I had ever heard one, but they seemed to fit anyway. I am your death. The bunny monster advanced, its maw opening to reveal an expanse of teeth. Big, sharp, pointy teeth by the dozen. It growled, and its breath was hot on my face, even though it was still several meters away. Right then, my earlier question sprang to mind. How do you kill a vampire? And I knew that was the wrong question. The same way I suddenly understood what the monster was and where it came from. It's not a vampire, I said to myself. It's a demon. How do you kill a demon? You don't, Sheila said, and I realized I had spoken more loudly than I thought I had. Reaching into her purse, it suddenly struck me how wonderfully feminine it was that, through all that had gone on since we bumped into each other on the streets above, she kept a hold of that purse. And she pulled out a beaded chain that she wrapped around her right hand. You banish it. Sheila stepped forward to meet the bunny monster, her hand raised high, and I could see a small metal cross dangling from the end of that chain. A rosary. She carried a rosary? Who carries a rosary anymore? How many people even know what a rosary is anymore, dude? Replied that annoying voice in my head that always told me when I was being a dummy. Be gone, beast, Sheila said in a firm voice of authority. Authority and faith. She was a believer? The bunny monster stopped for a moment. I could swear it was perplexed as it considered her and the small little cross dangling from her hand. Then it began to chuckle, slowly at first. Then with greater gusto until his chuckle became a laugh and then a full-on guffaw. That was quite rude, actually. Sheila was not being funny at all. In fact, the more I thought on it, the more I realized she had the right of it. I stepped up next to her and placed my left hand over top her right. If she could, believe, I could too. Hell, after everything that had happened, and now all that I had learned, I could not not believe, I guess. Scowling, I said in as firm and commanding a tone as I could muster, Be gone! The monster just laughed harder. And it advanced. It was not moving quickly. Its bulk prevented very quick movements on the walkway, narrow as it was. But wait, that didn't make any sense. The thing had moved quite well just a moment or two ago, and the walkway was not any narrower than it had been. What the hell? Oh, oh it was growing. Son of a bitch, it was growing, expanding even further than it already had, especially around its belly, where its babies were surely about ready to burst forth. The patches of fur were smaller now, more stretched, the oozing, scaly areas larger. Greater amounts of that ooze dripped off the bunny monster's bulk. One particular drop caught my eye as it pooled at the 
bend of its left foreleg for a couple seconds before dropping away. My gaze followed the drop as it fell. I watched as it hit the metal of the walkway floor, and as it bubbled and hissed, as wisps of gas rose from the spot where the drop had landed. Acid. The ooze was acid. I had noticed that before, but it had not clicked. I looked at the metal plating at the monster's feet. A few meters back, where it had paused last, several small holes were eaten through the walkway. The monster was moving now, though, and the drips did not have time to pool. But it was also larger, and it was oozing more. I squeezed Sheila's hand, a plan forming in my mind. She went slightly and shot a glare my way. I nodded to the floor, and her eyes followed the motion of my head. They widened. She understood. Together, we stepped forward toward the monster, which now crouched only three meters away. Be gone, I shouted, and I heard her shout it as well. Our rain words rang out in unison, amplifying each other as the sudden hope and resolve I felt seemed to give them strength. Then suddenly, the little cross dangling from our hands flashed. Just a little flash of light, but I saw it, plain as day. The bunny monster stopped. Its eyes grew wide and its jaw dropped open, but not in a roar or in a show of intimidation, in amazement, and maybe in fear. You know him, it said, its voice so strong and mocking a few seconds ago, now quivering and uncertain. Impossible. You cannot. I moved forward again, and Sheila came with me. She needed no prompting. It was as though we both knew what we needed to do without discussing it with each other, like our minds were one just then. Be gone! We shouted in unison, and the cross lit up again, brighter this time. The bunny monster drew back, open fear on its face as it retreated. The ooze was dropping faster now, almost a steady stream of the stuff. The light from the cross remained. It even grew brighter. In fact, the entire tunnel seemed as though it was illuminated by it. Then I heard the noise behind us, and I realized it was not the cross that was glowing. It was reflecting the lights of the southbound train as it approached from the tunnel. The beast noticed the train as well, and its eyes narrowed again. The fear lessened on its face, and it grinned for a second. Well played, it said, and it placed its foot down on the bit of walkway it had just abandoned in its retreat. With a loud squeal of protest, the walkway, having reached the edge of its endurance beneath the beast's weight and the corrosion caused by its acidic ooze, gave way, its outer edge collapsing downward until it struck the floor of the tunnel, leaving a ramp where a minute ago, there was a flat walking space. The beast's eyes widened again as it tried to prevent itself from falling, and for the briefest of moments it appeared the bunny monster might actually succeed, but slowly, ponderously, it lost its balance and toppled down onto the floor of the tunnel. The bunny monster rolled over as it fell, its momentum carrying it clear of the walkway wreckage. I heard the horn of the train sound as the conductor saw what happened. <laughs> Lord knew what he thought of it. And then there was a white flash of light, as the bunny monster struck the third rail, the one that carried the electric current for the trains. Brakes squealed, but even louder squealed the bunny monster. Then the train barreled over it, its momentum too much to prevent a collision. The front car lurched, bouncing off the tracks and slamming into the pillars dividing the southbound from the northbound rails, but the momentum of the cars behind it kept pushing the train along. Unable to leave the rails completely because of the narrowness of the tunnel, it ricocheted from one side to the other, rending the walkway to the south of us and the pillars on the other sides, shattering train car windows and tearing open the metal of the cars' sides until finally it came to rest with the front car battered and crushed halfway into the station to the south.
At some point during the crash, I threw myself atop Sheila and bore her down onto the walkway in a show of stupidity and chivalry. Chivalry because, hey, she was a lady and men protect ladies. Stupidity because, yeah, duh, I'm going to protect her from a train wreck with my skinny ass. Regardless, it worked. As the dust settled and the emergency lights kicked on, many of the nearby illuminations were either shorted out or flat out crushed by the crash. I took stock of our situation and was gratified to find that neither she nor I were hurt, or at least no more hurt than we were already. Holy shit, Sheila breathed as I helped her to her feet. Yeah, no kidding. We looked down the tunnel at the wreck and I could not help be impressed. Then I heard groans and weeping from the passengers in the train and my moment of awe turned into sickness and then guilt. People were hurt and we had caused it. I had caused it. This is all my fault, I said, and I collapsed down onto my knees. Bullshit, Sheila said as she crouched down next to me. It was that thing's fault. She was right, of course, but that did not make it any easier to accept the fact. I think I might have shrugged. Or maybe I just shuddered. Regardless, I was unable to stand back up for a good minute or two. I just crouched there, looking at the destruction of the tunnel and feeling miserable. Sheila lurched me back to reality. You think it's dead? What? She looked at me like I was an idiot. It survived being run over by a truck and being brained. I snorted and finally pushed myself back up to my feet. It's a demon. You don't kill demons, you banish them, right? She flushed and looked away. Just seemed right. She drew a breath and added, I don't really believe in that stuff. She sounded like she was trying to convince herself as much as me. I quirked an eyebrow at her and pointed at the rosary, which was still wrapped around her hand. Family heirloom, she said. Then she cleared her throat. Come on. She walked over to the break in the walkway and, keeping three points of contact, lowered herself down the newly made ramp until she reached the tunnel floor. Then she looked back up at me <laughs> expectantly. You coming? I actually had no intention to going down there. The smart thing to do would be to hightail it north on the walkway to the next station in case the bunny monster had survived. But then if it had died or been banished or whatever, I would never know it, and I would spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder for its return for no reason. But on the other hand, if it was alive, well, if it was alive, it was certainly injured at the least, this might be our best chance to finish it off. I nodded and slid down, keeping contact with the ramp as Sheila had. A moment later, we stood together between the rails and did not move. It was like we were rooted to the spot. Maybe it was because up on the walkway, we were a bit more shielded from the real destruction of the crash, but down next to it, the debris thrown everywhere was all the more real. Maybe we were just rethinking our decision. None of that. I took Sheila's rosary-wrapped hand and smiled at her in a way that I hope was reassuring. Then we stepped forward together to survey the scene and find the bunny monster. It was like a scene from a nightmare. The emergency lights only gave partial illumination, leaving most of the shattered train shrouded in shadow. Up ahead somewhere, a fire burned. Not large, but enough to provide a flickering yellow-orange glow to the scene that was positively eerie. An occasional electric arc from the third rail or from some shorted system within the train or in one of the shattered lighting assemblies in the tunnel provided the final visual accent. The stench of ozone and dust filled the air, and above it a charred smell like rancid meat that had been left on a barbecue overnight. And then there were the sounds of the passengers, many more of them now that the initial shock had worn off, the groans and cries of the injured, the shouts and pleas for help from the panicked, and, in ones or twos, calmer voices from the few who had kept their wits about them and were trying to get the others organized, or at least prevent them from panicking completely. In all, Hollywood could not have done a better job if they were trying to make a scene to scare me out of my wits. 
knowing that there really were injured people ahead and maybe still the bunny monster itself just made it worse. I shivered, but not from cold. It was actually quite warm. Again, I had the urge to just get back on the walkway and cruise north away from the scene. But I did not. Hand in hand with Sheila, I walked down the tunnel, hugging the gap between the southbound and northbound rails since most of the train wreckage had ended up nearer the wall with the walkway. And besides, the third rail ran through the central area, and that was where we would find the bunny monster. Slowly, carefully, we picked our way over broken-off pieces of cement and metal, shattered plexiglass from the train's windows, and the occasional sign or lamp fitting that littered the ground. At one point, we had to clamber over an entire wheel assembly that had broken off one of the train cars. That was where we saw the first body. An older man, in his late 50s probably, he was pinned beneath the wheel assembly, his face locked into expression of surprise. Sheila gasped and turned her head away. I found myself doing the same as sudden guilt rushed through me again. That guy be alive if it wasn't for me. I knew that was a lie. It was the bunny monster's fault, not mine. It had crossed over to our world to wreak havoc of its own accord. I didn't ask it to, and for a while there, I was helpless to stop it. At least it didn't suffer, it looks like. Sheila looked up at me and squeezed my hand as she spoke, and I could tell she was dealing with some shadow of the same guilt I felt. I nodded and inhaled deeply, instantly regretting it as the growing stench of the scene filled my nostrils. Reminding myself to breathe through my mouth, I said, let's move. I tried to sound determined, but I don't think I did very well at it. But Sheila made no comment. She simply turned fully away from the man and led the way further along the train. About 20 meters further, we found it a great mass of charred and twisted flesh, or rather, two masses of charred flesh. It had been cleaved in two by the impact with the train and obviously cooked by its contact with the third rail. This has to be the beast, Sheila said, then she coughed and bent over, making little heaves and clutching at her stomach. I didn't blame her. Here the stench was almost overpowering. Even breathing through my mouth, it was like I could taste it. And that was without trying to talk. I pulled the tatters of my trench coat up over my chin so it covered my mouth and nose, but that did not help much at all. It truly, truly stank. Let's go back, I said as quickly as I could to avoid getting more of the stench than I had to, but Sheila shook her head. No, we have to be sure. She straightened, getting herself back under control and managed to half smile that I returned for all the good it would do with my mouth beneath my shirt. So I just shrugged, which earned a half laugh from her. Then we both took deep breaths and turned back to the burnt corpse of the bunny monster. It was big. No shock there. What was shocking was the fact that it appeared to be charred straight through to its center. There was no blood, not even from the areas that were cut off by the train, but that made no sense at all. The third rail carries high voltage, but not enough to completely fry a mass of flesh as big as the bunny monster, not in that short amount of time. I frowned and looked around for a tool I could use. I found it a short while later, a handrail that had been ripped off its mounts during the crash. It was about four feet long and jagged at both ends. It would make a handy spear. I took the spear and walked to the bunny monster's remains. I hesitated only for a second, then thrust the spear as far into it as I could. The spear went in like a hot knife through butter, and then a large chunk of the remains simply broke off and crumbled into a pile of ash at my feet. I stabbed it again in a different location. Same effect. Looks like it's good and truly dead. 
It was hard to argue with Sheila's logic, but after being terrorized by that thing for so long, that wasn't enough. The anger that I had kept bottled up, where it, where it could not find it, even with its psychic bond with me, the shame at being kept powerless, the guilt of being unable to prevent its atrocities, that anger demanded more. I heard myself howling as I brought the metal pole down upon the remains of the bunny monster. Again and again, I rained blows down. Each time, another chunk of its body fell apart and crumbled to dust. My arms and shoulders began to grow numb from the exertion, so different from what I had normally asked them to do, but still I continued. Gradually, my anger gave way to a grim satisfaction. That motherfucker was not getting back from this. Sometime later, minutes, hours, seconds, I reached a particularly bulky bit of char and brought my spear down. Like before, a big chunk of the bunny monster's remains broke off and crumbled, but this time something else fell out. A misshapen mass that at first was not anything I could recognize. And then it moved. Stuck out an arm and moved. It was certainly an arm because at the end of the limb was a hand complete with an opposable thumb. I stopped dumbfounded as the thing squirmed on the ground and then extended a second arm. And then first one leg, then another. Although I only recognized them as legs because of their location on the thing's body. Down the torso from where the arms were. Aside from that... The arms and legs were the same length, as though the thing on the ground, whatever it was, was meant for walking on all fours. I swallowed and, and looked at it more closely, where I presumed its head would be. There was only an amorphous thing that might someday be a face of some fort on a stump that would probably contain a brain. It was disgusting, unnatural, and unlike any creature I had ever seen. It was the bunny monster's child. But it didn't live long. Turns out, even though the bunny monster may have been a demon, its child was not. Or at least not fully. I guess, having gestated here on Earth and having been nourished in the womb with human blood, it was bound by physical laws just like a human. Or maybe it was vulnerable because it had not been brought to term. Or maybe it could not abide electricity. For whatever reason, I found that a spear through the heart killed it just fine. After that... Sheila found her own implement and joined me in breaking up the bunny monster's remains. It went without saying that we could not let any of its offspring survive. We found two more and dispatched them, just like the first. It took a long time to get out of there. Sooner than I expected, but longer than I hoped, paramedics and other emergency crews showed up to take care of the train wreck. They came in through the station where Sheila and I had found ourselves trapped, and naturally they were not going to let anyone leave without giving them a clean bill of health which was, frankly, ideal. And not just because I had several cuts on my arms and chest that required dressing and perhaps a few stitches as well. No, and I was ashamed to think this, the wreck made for an ideal cover. Everyone was expected to be injured to some extent or another and to have bedraggled clothing. No one asked Sheila and I if we were the people who had called asking for assistance in exiting the station earlier. The only focus was on treating the wounded. So I found myself sitting on a bench in the station, wincing as a paramedic applied alcohol to the smaller cuts on my legs and torso. My forearms, though, were the bunny monster had latched on so strongly. You're going to need stitches, buddy, the guy said as he pulled off the mid-cheek bandages Sheila had applied. A lot of them. He smiled apologetically, then applied clean dressings to the wounds after an antibiotic ointment. Where should I go? He shrugged and gestured toward the far side of the station where a small gaggle of people with minor wounds sat or stood waiting. Just hang with those folks. We'll get you taken care of once we get the major trauma cases out of here. That made sense, I suppose. Why tie up an ambulance with someone who is in no immediate danger when you could use it for a person who's going to die without help? And unfortunately, there were a number of people from the train who met that description. 
For a moment, I was tempted to start berating myself over that, but I forced my mind to other things. Namely, to Sheila. She waited on a bench by the gaggle of ambulatory patients, a few bandages recently applied where the bunny monster had dug into her. Thankfully, not as many as I had. She smiled as I approached, and I pondered how quickly things changed. Not so long ago, we were just faces on the street to each other. Me, a guy who might help her out with cash for the next meal, and her, a pretty but forgettable drifter, if only the bunny monster had not picked her out. But now, after the stress we had shared together, I felt close to her. Strange, considering I knew next to nothing about her. Her smile said she felt the same. I settled down next to her on the bench and let out a long sigh. I honestly didn't think we were going to make it through that, I said. Sheila glanced sidelong at me and perched her lips, but was silent for a while. When she finally spoke, it was in a subdued tone. I never in a million years would have imagined something like that was possible. She shuddered slightly. You could have just run away and let me take me. Her smile returned, and I could see the gratitude in her eyes. Thank you. Part of me felt good about that, another part insulted, like I would just abandon someone to that thing's ministrations. But then I reminded myself that I had pretty much done essentially that many times before encountering Sheila. So why was she different, just because she was young with a pretty face? I wanted to think there was something deeper to my decision-making process, but looking back on it, I wasn't sure. But did it really matter? Yeah, said that inner voice that tended to annoy me so much. Yeah, it really does. That was something that would take a long time to figure out. Fortunately, I had all the time in the world, so instead of waxing philosophical, I simply said, You're welcome, and shook her hand. I quickly wished I had not. Now that the adrenaline and the stress of the incident had worn off, my arms really hurt. I winced out and lit a little groan as she squeezed my hand, and Sheila's eyes widened. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. No worries, I said through clenched teeth. Dude said, I need a bunch of stitches. I indicated the paramedic who had been moved on to a man who appeared to have a broken leg. You know, Sheila said, a mischievous twinkle in her eye. There's a free clinic a few blocks from here. I'm on good terms with the manager. If you don't want to wait around for the ambulance crews to get back. That was a great idea. An hour later, I had fresh sutures in both arms, a new shirt and jacket on my back, a full antibiotic series and painkillers in hand, and a contented smile on my face. Sheila's medical friend had come through with flying colors. Even better, if anyone even noticed us leaving the tea station, they didn't care. We were just another couple of people who were unlucky enough to get caught up in the wreckage, but also lucky enough to escape relatively uninjured. Which was great, because having to answer questions about what we had been doing there would have been... Well, awkward. I stepped out of the clinic and waited on the sidewalk while Sheila thanked her friend again before following me out. During those few minutes alone, I took in the street around the clinic. It was neither run-down nor swanky, just sort of middling, with storefronts of all varieties and the usual cross-section of humanity walking, running, driving, or riding along in the late afternoon. The sun was low enough in the sky that it had sunk below the tops of the surrounding buildings, leaving the street in shadow. The sounds of hustle and bustle, the set of cooking food, the perfume of a woman who brushed past me, the exhaust from the passing vehicles, and the chill of the breeze on my cheeks felt so much better than I ever recalled before. It was all like it was new and I was noticing it for the first time. I understood why. Just a couple hours ago, I thought I was going to die, and maybe many more people would die with me. Instead, I was alive, and it felt great. Sheila pulled the clinic door closed and slid up next to me, linking her arm with mine. Well, you've got a new lease on life. What do you want to do first? The euphoria of having survived was hitting her as well, it seemed. I shrugged. I don't know. I shouldn't stay out too late, though. I've got work. I stopped and uh, not because of the incredulous look that appeared on Sheila's face. Something had struck me then. 
She had mentioned it back on the train after I told her the story of what's going on. She thought everyone on Ketchum Station was dead. Hell, everyone on Ketchum Station was dead, which meant I was dead. I burst out laughing, and I felt all the worries and concerns that had been haunting me for weeks, hell, months, maybe years, fly away with the sounds of my merriment. Hot damn, I said. I'm dead. Sheila looked askance at me. Huh? Everyone probably thinks I'm dead, killed up on Ketchum Station. Hell, I'm amazed they still haven't come and taken all my shit out of my apartment. Delighted, I looked at Sheila with a big grin. I'm dead. I don't have to do a damn thing. Another thought struck me then. It was beautiful. Perfect, even. Hey, Sheila, you said you're on the road? She nodded, still looking a bit confused by my sudden antics. Are you going to any place in particular? She shrugged. Not really. Just seeing where the road takes me. Experiencing the world. My grin felt like it was going to split my face, as wide as it became. Would you like a traveling companion? Sheila blinked, surprised. She was silent for several seconds, just looking at me and obviously thinking it through. Finally, she said, sure, why not? Sounds like fun. Then she smiled again, and that smile contained the promise of freedom and happiness. Maybe not forever, but for a while. And that was good enough. Right, so that's the end of the story. All's well that ends well. The bunny monster's charred and broken up into pieces, and Barry and Sheila are going to go wander the world together. Just too bad they don't know Kung Fu, right? <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, it's, as usual, it's been a while since I read that one. Um, I still like it. Of course, I like it because I wrote it, but I still think there's some fun charm to it. Little Monty Python is, that's no ordinary rabbit. It's got big, sharp, pointy teeth. Stuff at the beginning. And a little, uh, little event horizon kind of weirdness through space-time warping at the end. And, uh, you know, I just, I, kind of fun. It's a little different from some of the other stuff I've written. Eh, I just kind of dug it. Uh, hopefully you did, too. If you did, you know what to do. And we'll get to that in a second. So, yeah, so um, that's it for this one. Uh, good news on the production front. Uh, Audible finally has gotten through approving the audiobook of my... Sword and sorcery with a Western feel fantasy action adventure novel called Glimmervale, which is the first one in my Glimmervale Chronicles series, which just currently stands at five novels and one short story. And I'm obviously going to be putting out book six and seven and eight and nine here in the future. Um, but it's good. I've been meaning to get this one audio-wised for a while now, and it's finally out and finally put on all the various uh, uh, places you can get it from. And uh, Jim Fear, the guy who did the audio for me, is going to do a little pimpage of his own, but I'm going to do some pimpage of mine too, in, other, in the, the fact of sharing it with you guys here on the podcast and YouTube channel. Over the span of the next several weeks, there's 30 chapters in the book, and the reading each chapter takes about 10 minutes, so we'll probably do two chapters a week or so for the next 15 weeks or so. That's what you're going to get, whether you like it or not. Ha <laughs> ha. Anyway, um, so that's we'll start that uh, next week. But that's the time for another another time. Um Thanks for sticking around for this one. Hope you liked it. If you did, you know what to do. Go by ssnstorytelling.com, which is my web store, and pick up a copy. You can pick up a print or ebook copy of What Lurks Between. You can't do audiobook yet because this is the first recording I've ever made of it. And I don't know that we're going to sell me 
you know, my unprofessionalness reading it. At least not at this point. As I get more practiced, maybe. But um, you can also, of course, go and just uh, leave me a tip. Uh, send some crypto to my crypto wallets. Or, you know, you can't sign up for Patreon anymore because I'm not dealing with those guys anymore. But I'm going to set up some different uh, channels through which to send cash if you really don't want to buy anything. But you can find all my stuff on Amazon and all the other places if you really don't want to deal with my SSN storytelling site. Although I don't know why you wouldn't want to because it's awesome and it it's nice, easy transaction and easy loading on all your various gear. But hey, that's up to you. Until um, next week, let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email. And like, subscribe, and tell everybody all your pals about it. In the meantime, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Finally, if you really like what I'm doing and want to support on a more regular basis, you can come to my Patreon and become a patron. Just a couple bucks a month will help out a lot. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zoggy, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>